Well, good morning, family. My name is Eddie. It is a pleasure to be with you all. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and go to Philippians chapter 1. We're, we're finishing out the first chapter of Philippians, uh, and so I thank you. Uh, if you're new, we've been going through this series talking about this Philippian church, and Paul writes to them from prison, ad- addressing some of the, the challenges that they're experiencing as well as the challenges that he himself experiences And he's bringing the gospel to bear in their lives. And it benefits us to go through and see how he does so because we find ourselves, though far removed in terms of time and and culture, we still are connected in the realities of uh, seeking and needing joy in the midst of sorrow and and suffering and trying to find out what it looks like to live life well in, in a difficult place. So if you'll stand with me, we're gonna... Uh, read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now have, and I still, (laughs) there we go. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promise of your faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. And God, I thank you for your body of believers that you place us in a body and you call us to be united to one another by your Holy Spirit and according to your common purpose of seeing your gospel bring your glory on the earth. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace the call to love you by loving others and embrace the call to suffer well. Lord, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to experience suffering. And so much of our lives involve running from and avoiding that. But God, I pray that you would give us courage and conviction to embrace the things that you use to bring about maturity and growth. Holy Spirit, would you minister to those who are experiencing suffering even now? Give us grace and open your word to us. Help your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, at our house, we bought some some house plants a few months back, and, and I've been trying to keep them alive. And if you've been keeping track or been around for any length of time, you know that that is a difficult prospect for me. When our kids were um, a bit younger, they would come home from school occasionally with a plant because our teachers hated me. I don't know. Uh, and so they had this experience of, oh, we grew this at, at, at school, or oh, the teacher brought this in, and he wants us, she wants us to, to grow this. And I said, yeah, you know, my, my thought was, well, I guess it's going to end in tears because this, this plant is going to die. I'm just, I have not 
had a good track record with, with plants. But we bought some plants that seemed to only need to be watered once a week. And so every Sunday or so, I put my finger in the soil, and if it's dry, I put some, some water in it. And, uh, and then my wife got these cool fertilizer dart things, and so we put those in, and they last for months. I'm not sure how long, as long as they last until I decide to put more in. But they've lived. And so I've come to realize that, that plants need, and, and I know we're, we don't need to bi- be biologists to know this, but they need light, they need water, and apparently they need fertilizer. And uh, at, apparently my, in my prior gardening exercises, I either didn't do enough of those, that combination of things or didn't do any of them or did too much. I don't know, but somehow they're alive. And when the right things are there, plants grow. Uh, I want us to think about what it looks like for us to grow as Christians. We just read this passage and, and it has something to say about how we are to grow. You know, when we look at our lives, we, we sometimes we don't feel like we're actually growing. I mean, maybe you look at your life and you, you feel like you're, you're stagnant. There's not any sort of vitality Maybe even it feels like your leaves are withering, that, that the edges are going gray or, or brown, and, and you're just, you're not making it. And, and sometimes we wonder, okay, what's going on? You know, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church, I'm, I'm doing all the things that I think I'm supposed to do. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that we experience stagnation in our Christian life is because we run away from one of the primary ingredients that God uses in our life for growth. And that that ingredient isn't fertilizer, it's it's suffering. So today my hope is that we'll be convinced from this scripture and, and encouraged to live a life worthy of the gospel and embrace the suffering that he has for our lives. Are we excited for this? All right. I promise this will end better than it has started. Because God's word is good. So he says in, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, um, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that, that's a very similar statement that Paul makes to other, other statements that he makes in other letters. Usually, though, he talks about the language of walking. He says, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, or walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Uh, in some of your Bibles, you won't necessarily see that. You'll see it say, live a life. But, but he uses the language of walking often. This is a unique situation where he says this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he uses that word or that phrase, let your, your, your manner of life, that's the English translator's way of trying to wrestle with this idea of being a good citizen. Because the language is of being a proper citizen. Now, you may not remember, but when I talked to you, uh, I think the first week we talked about the Philippians, uh, the, this, this group in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, right? It's, it's in Greece. It's around Greece. It's near the Mediterranean. And, but it was colonized hundreds of years before by Roman uh, uh, soldiers. And then the, this this colony was afforded all the privileges of Roman citizenship, and it was something that, that they had pride in. 
If you read through the book of Acts, one of the things that Paul uses as leverage in his own interactions with people is the fact that he's a Roman citizen and therefore he gets treated differently. And so Paul's aware of this fact and he begins to talk to them and almost, almost under uh, the, the subtext is, I know that you guys are proud to be Roman citizens, but don't focus there. Let your manner of life reflect that f- the fact that you are heavenly citizens. And he's going to go on and talk about that later in the book. But the, the fact is that they are heavenly citizens. And he says, therefore, you, you can hear him say, uh, instead of live, let your manner of life be, he says, live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. They, they had special privileges as Roman citizens. They had special honor. But their greatest honor was that of their heavenly citizenship. And, and I just want to briefly put this out there. In what do you take the greatest honor? In what do you take the greatest honor? I love being an American citizen. I was born here. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be an American. I'm not grumpy about it or angsty about it. I like America. I've been to other places that were fun and great to visit, but I want to stay here. I'm, I'm happy to be an American. And we should be thankful for God's provision in this country. I, I remember going to China, and at the time, I had dyed my hair kind of red because I was in college, and why not? And uh, I was carrying around a guitar. So I was a white guy with red hair and a guitar. Not really great for not standing out as a missionary. Uh, so they made me wear a hat. And basically, one of the missionaries said, yeah, if you see a white guy with a guitar, it's a, they were a missionary. And, and, and I remember just being there and being so thankful to be um, an American because they, they, we had so many things that we couldn't do. We were, we were sitting in, a, uh, in an office building, uh, a high-rise office building, and we were quietly singing worship songs. I mean, quietly, almost whispering them because we couldn't sing like we do here. I'm thankful. And yet, my primary citizenship is in heaven. And we can never mix those two up. Please don't mix those two up. And we could go in a whole theology of the kingdom of God, but I can, I can just assure you that it is not here on earth. There's not a nation that God's, yeah, that's mine. That's, that's the one that I'm going to do all the things that I'm going to do. Now, he'll use people within those nations, but ultimately the kingdom that he's establishing is one drawing from every tribe, tongue, and, and nation. And, and we have the privilege of participating in that. And I, as I pray that God continues to bless America, that he continues to do good to us, that is not his ultimate goal. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and that's important. So, don't forget that next year. Okay, I'm done. Um, so Paul wants us to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel that has created this people. You see, when Jesus died on the cross... When, he, he, when God said, I'm going to send my son Jesus, God's going to take on human flesh, as John 1.14 says, he's going to dwell among us, he, he's going to live a perfect life of complete obedience to his own father, to his heavenly father, he's going to die on the cross, defeating Satan's sin and death, and he's going to rise again, offering eternal life to anyone who would put their trust in him. When he did that, he didn't do that so that he could have an army of individuals. Let me, let me say that again. 
Jesus didn't die so that you could now be an individualistic, personal, private Christian. By that I mean that, that you can't have church with just me and Jesus. Because God did not create persons, he was seeking to create a people. That's always been his habit of, of establishing people. In the beginning, he creates uh, Adam and Eve, and what does he tell them to do but to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply, to create a family. These weren't just some strangers who were coexisting in Eden. This was a husband and a wife and, and children, and the goal was to create a family, a people. And we mucked it up. Bad things happened, but he goes and he calls Abraham. And what does he promise to Abraham but that he would be a great nation, and he'd be the father of many peoples. And then Moses goes and he frees what? The people of Israel. Moses takes the, the ethnic group and, and he frees them from slavery to Egypt, but then they establish what? A people, an, an identity, a, an organization. And that's something that you don't necessarily have to, to strive to, to make the point of in other cultures, but for us as, as individual Americans, that can be something that we really do struggle with. Other cultures get communal living better than we do. But I just want to encourage you that there's an element of Christianity that involves you identifying with people that you may not want to identify with. You choosing to love and commit to people that you would not otherwise love and commit to. And, and this is the call of God. This is not an add-on. This is not a, uh, an addition. This is not, a, well, maybe that would be icing on the cake. This is what constitutes Christianity. This is why it's so important to come to church, not because you need to be in a service, but because as we hear the word of God together, as we, we submit ourselves to what God says in his word, we have opportunity among one another to, to show and, and see God at work in our lives. Christian, God has saved you to be part of a people. And, and, and it doesn't just save us, it, it unites us. He goes on and he says in the second part of verse 27, he says, you know, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, because he's in prison, he's not sure when he's going to be able to visit them, I may hear you that you are standing firm in the spirit with one, and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For us who've embraced the gospel, we are united. That's, that's the reality. That's not something that we get to decide, okay, am I going to be united? Am I not going to be united? When you're born into a family and you look over at your ugly little brother and you want to say, you're not my brother, you can say that to your blue in the face, but that doesn't change the fact that that is your ugly little brother. And I'm being silly but when you're born into the, the family of God and you look over at this Christian that you just, I don't like the way they, mm, that's your brother. You, you, you can, you, mm, I don't like them. And that is still your brother. And God is your father. We're united because of the gospel. We're in Christ. And Paul goes on and he says that we are 
firm, standing firm in one spirit. Now, commentators are kind of split. Some of them say, well, we're, we're in one spirit. Like in my version of the Bible, it says uh, in one spirit, lowercase spirit. So it's kind of this idea of like esprit de corps, kind of we're all together, communal living. I don't think that's what it means. I think he's saying that we're united in the Holy Spirit. That the spirit that Paul is referring to is the Holy Spirit who at the moment of your salvation comes and dwells within you. And he dwells within the other person right beside you who's also a Christian. And he dwells within that woman over there who's also a Christian. And one of the reasons that we are called to be united and to love one another is because each of us is, is a participant in being the presence of God among us. We have the Spirit of God in us, teaching us to be more holy, convicting of, us of sin, helping us to obey God's commandments. And that Holy Spirit has the same agenda for us all, that our lives would glorify Christ and that we would glorify God together. Not, not individualistically, not siloed away, but together. We're united in one Spirit. And he goes on and he says... I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And then he says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. That word mind, it's actually soul in, in the original language. It can mean soul. It can mean kind of person, a representative of the whole person. The idea is that, that when we, we live and act and move, we're doing so in a united way. Have you, have you been uh, driving down seven and seen the packs of birds, the just... They, they move like one string. It's crazy. They'll be on the power lines, and then you drive by, and they all just decide to get up and do this thing, and then they just randomly decide to go back and sit down on the power lines, except for the two that won't go off. There, there's something about the way that they're made that they, they act as one unit. And, and you and I, we were made to act as one. That's why he says as one soul, as one mind, as one, as one person. We've been given this precious truth that God's at work in the world, this gospel reality, and he's intervened on our behalf. Jesus lived this perfectly righteous life. He died on the cross. He rose again so that we'd not have to face the punishment of our sins. And instead, we experience the love of God. And it's our responsibility to contend for that good news, to share that good news, and to do so as one unit. This is why we're a church. This is why we care about the Route 7 corridor. And we're called to be brave and not fearful. Um, we're, we're called to recognize what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. You don't have to go there. You can if you want. Jesus says to his disciples, have no fear of people who are against them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What, the, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. And, and he goes on to say, don't worry about your life, because God cares about it. We are called to a common purpose, to contend for the gospel. And what does that look like? That looks like you believing the gospel. That looks like you knowing the gospel. If I were to have a conversation with you and I were just to say, can you just share the good news with me? Let's, let's do some role playing. You know, I'm, I'm some guy at the coffee shop. What would you say if I, if I asked, how can I be saved? 
What would you say if I said, okay, what's the gospel? Hopefully you'd say something about how Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I should have lived. He died on the cross for our death, bearing the punishment that we deserve, and he rose again from death, offering life forever to anyone who would trust in him. And, but this is, this is something we need to wrestle over and think about, especially as our culture continues to become more post-Christian, as some would say. Words that, that I take for granted, I can no longer take for granted. Sin, salvation, justification. These are words that we have to then begin to say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to be wrong with God? We need to know these things. We are united by a common purpose, and, and we're responsible for that unity. Paul's going to continue to talk about this, but it's, it's my responsibility and it's your responsibility to protect the unity of this church. He, he's speaking to, where he's not just speaking to the church at large. Because sometimes when we think about disagreements that we have with the church, we might say, well, I love Jesus and I love Christians, I just don't love that church. I love Jesus. I, I love Christians in some sort of amorphous, non-real person sort of sense, but, but I'm not a big fan of local institutional church. But Paul here is talking about local institutional church. It's not di divorced from the universal church, but it's connected to it. And what does he say? He says that you need to, that you need to be united. He's going to go on in chapter 2 to talk more about what it looks like to be humble and united. But we have a responsibility to protect the unity that God has established. You know, if we're a family, then we're called to love one another as, as good family members should. I mean, I would encourage you today, go, uh, if you have a Bible app or, or Google, just Google Bible one another. And look at all the New Testament passages that talk about Christians and how they are relating to one another. Now, the Bible uses the phrase one another in a lot of ways, but, but look at the ones that talk about how Jesus, or talk about uh, Christians loving one another. I'll give you a few. In John 13, 34 and 35, you've heard me say this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love what? One another. Just as I have loved you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who's one another? You don't have to do this, but look around. That's one another. John chapter 15, he's talking about living in the vine. And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Okay, Jesus, I'll love these other people, but do I have to be friends with them? Do I have to care for them? Do I have? What is loving one another? I do, I feel affection towards these people. Is that enough? No, he goes on and he says, as I have loved you. Can you imagine those words ringing in their ears as they see Jesus crucified on the cross? Can you, can you imagine Thomas and then maybe the words ringing in his ears after he has seen the side and the, and the scars of Jesus Christ? Love one another as I have loved. Verse 17, these things I command to you so that you will love one another. Romans chapter 12 says, chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 16, 
live in harmony with one another. Can I love other people, but let's just, let's, uh, let's, we have conflict, let's just pretend like we don't, and we can just love one another by sharing a donut and then quickly going to lunch so that we don't see their faces again until next Sunday when we have to love one another again. No, it says live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He goes on in Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. He's talking about people who feel a greater deal of freedom versus people who have less freedom. In this case, it's, it's eating food offered to idols, but the idea is that they have their conscience, you have your conscience, and you have your responsibility. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Love one another. Chapter 15, verses 5 and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Can I welcome them by just shaking them, their hands and kind of quickly going away? No. How does Jesus welcome us? He doesn't just welcome us. He comes to us. He comes toward us. Family, I'm preaching to myself. Chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He says the same thing in, in several of the places. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. The idea being of, of expressing affection toward one another. Now, that wouldn't be appropriate in this time. Please don't do that in a literal sense. But you understand that there's an affection that follows us as we relate to other Christians. Galatians, just a few, just a few texts. And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to stop in a second, but they're not all the texts. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And this is, comes just as he's talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We want to grow in the fruit of God. Help me to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. But why do we grow in the fruit of the Spirit? So that we can love one another. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul, what do you mean when you say walk by the Spirit? Well, he answers, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Then he goes on, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, help them. Keep watch over your own life. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What is, that, what is that law, Paul? It's the law that Jesus said, I've given you a new commandment. Love one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Or I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've heard that kind of before. How, how am I to do that, Paul? With all patience and gentleness, with with humility, bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another. And, and here you hear Paul saying, bearing with one another in love, because I know that it's hard. I know that it's hard. I know you don't want to bear with one another. I know what he did to you. I know what she did to you. That legitimately stinks. I'm so sorry. Some of you, you come from, from legitimate places of hurt where you were in a church context and people hurt you and you want to say that was hurtful, but you take it a step too far and say, the church is hurtful. I'm, I can't do the church. No, he, 
Jesus says you have to do the church. Now, you don't have to stick around in toxic, manipulative, bad, non-Christian, anti-gospel churches. But if you're in a church where there are people who legitimately love Jesus and they're sinners, welcome to life. <laughs> and sometimes people will, will, will do things that will trigger you and it will hurt. And th that's not a call for you to say, you know what, church is not for me. It's a call to remember, Jesus, help me to bear with these people. Give me grace. Help me by your spirit. Where was I? Chapter 4, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. Verse 32, he goes on. He says, be kind to one another. I love that. Be, be kind to one another. Kindness is kind of popular these days in some sort of trendy, put it on a shirt sort of way. Um, and sometimes it's taken to mean allow people to believe and do whatever they want. But can I just encourage you, being kind just means being being kind, be nice. Sometimes you have to tell people the truth in kindness, but you can be kind. Treat others as you'd like to be treated, especially those within the household of God. Be kind. Where am I? Verse 32, chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for, the thing, for everything that God the Father has given us, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We don't, we don't even get away from, from having to allow other people to tell us what to do. If another Christian is, is in your life and they're walking with Christ and encouraging you to obey Christ, you are called to submit to God's authority in that respect doesn't mean that someone can tell you you need to wear different shoes because they don't like your shoes. But it does mean that when, when brothers and sisters say, hey, you know what, daddy said this, you got to listen. It goes on Colossians chapter 3 verses 9, 13 and 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15, I think I want to read that one. See that no one repays evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's a bummer, right? Oh, Jesus, you mean that you don't want me to pray that that person gets what they deserve? Because I know that we don't actually pursue it, but we think about it. And maybe we tell our friends how we're thinking about it. And, and Paul tells us that's off the table. Now, we, we joke about gossip, and, and I don't think that people take it super serious these days, but gossip is real and it's wrong. Talking, if you're not part of the solution or the problem, you need to be quiet. And send the person to someone who's part of the solution or the problem. It's not, it's not some like sanctified gossip prayer request time. You're called and I'm called to, to protect the unity of the church. And again, this is not some sort of weird insular insulating us so that bad people can do bad things. This is inviting everyone to read what Scripture says and take it seriously, myself included. You know, Eddie, you need to be kinder. You need to be more loving. You need to be more patient. You need to be more willing to, to, to sacrifice for the sake of others. You need to be more willing to, to give up your time, energy, talents when you don't want to and you're exhausted 
but that's what's needed for the sake of the body. I don't have time to be in a small group. Well, you have time to watch TV for four hours a day. I, I, don't, I don't think I can be in a small group. You know, I'm just, I'm tapped out. I'm an introvert. You know, it's hard. Well, I'm sure that all the other people who show up are not super, I mean, we can all find other things to do that we would enjoy more. I could just eat pie by myself, <laughs> maybe a cup of coffee. Who knows? But that would be a good time. It's nice warm pie, soup. I don't know. I could figure something out to do that I'd enjoy more than awkwardly kind of saying some things and not being sure if I'm being received and accepted and just like, I don't know. But, but we do that because that's what love is. It's, it's choosing to put yourself out there and choosing to be a gracious receiver of other people putting themselves out there. Can you imagine how the church would, would be if we were committed to this? To, to seeing things done in the power of the Holy Spirit and protecting the sanctity of the gospel message as we are united together? And, and please don't hear me saying, you know, you guys are terrible. I, I'm so thankful. I see so many faces of people who have done this in my life. You've been so kind to me. You've, you've, you've heard me. You've, you've forgiven me. I'm so thank- I know of stories of individuals in this room who have who've reconciled with one another, who've been patient and, and self-sacrificial. So I'm so, I'm so thankful for the, the evidence of God's grace in your life, and I just want to encourage you to, to continue all the more in it and to, to have courage to be united in these things. Because ultimately, the un- unity that we have is a testimony uh, to the world around us. When we live in the unity of the Spirit and, and unity of purpose, we display the hope that we have in God. And for those watching, they're forced to face their lack of hope. He says in, in Philippians, he, he says that this is proof. And it's proof not only to you, but it's proof to them as well. Uh, he says in verse 28, this, talking about all of the things he just talked about, unity in, in the Spirit and in purpose, being all pursuing a desire to live as heavenly citizens, uh, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, all of this, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, talking about their opponents, but you of your salvation. Why would it be a sign to the people who are watching us who don't trust in Jesus Christ that because we're unified and we're trusting in Jesus that they're going to be destroyed? I think it's because when people see individuals who are different who are, are trying to love one another even in the midst of brokenness and sin and offense, it expresses a kind of hope that the world does not have. The world doesn't have that kind of hope. This, the re- relationships don't have that kind of resiliency. And when people see that, they realize that there's something hopeless about their lives. And there's something hopeful about ours. But the reality is that living this way and living in this world will result in suffering. He goes on and he says in verses 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. 
That word at the very beginning is very important. He says, for it has been granted to you. He says, let your manner of life be appropriate, be united. He says all of this because, because it has been granted you not only to believe in Jesus Christ and receive his benefits, but also to suffer. Because we live in a world that's fallen, we will experience opposition. Because we ourselves have the sin nature in us, this brokenness, this, this rebellion that still exists even though we, we are given new life in Jesus Christ, though we're reborn, we have opposition. We face suffering. But the suffering we face as obedient Christians is the suffering that he uses to make us grow. I'm not talking about, hey, I broke the law and now I'm going to jail. Like that's, I'm sorry, shouldn't have broke the law. That's why you're suffering. But there's, there's unwarranted, unreceived, or un, un, on our part, caused suffering. And, and we can be tempted to say, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I thought I got saved so that you could, you could deliver me. And he says, yes, I'm going to deliver you by allowing you to suffer. And, and that's where our brains break. Because we think that deliverance is being saved from our present circumstances. But what did he say before? Do you remember last week? When we talked about deliverance, he wasn't talking about being saved necessarily from his present circumstances. He was, being, he was talking about eternal life. And, and the, God is, he's crafting and shaping and forming each of you. Do you know that? He's not just trying to make you a, a, a more conscientious, law-abiding uh, Christian, like some sort of fuddy-duddy, well, I, I, you know, I lived 80 years and I didn't break any rules and here I am. Praise God. No, he's crafting you into a person who when you come to eternity and you see that everything is about obeying God and worshiping, you will be able to say, this is old hat, I can do this. When, when you face the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God will have been working in your life, cutting away the brokenness and the sin. He will have been uh, shearing off the rough edges in order so that when he looks you in the eyes, you can say, I, I'm so thankful for what you've done because now I can see you for who you are and appreciate what you've done. My hunger isn't for that stuff in, on earth. My hunger isn't for those idols that I have. I can see you as you are the God that I was worshiping when I was on earth. We face suffering in order that we might be changed and transformed to be what God is shaping us to be. He talks about it in James, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He doesn't glorify suffering, but he says there's glory in the suffering. I'll say that again. He doesn't glorify your pain. But there is glory in experiencing the presence and power of God through that pain. 1 Peter 4, Peter says something very similar. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice, not because you love being in difficult situations, not because you love being in pain. No, he says rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When you see Jesus and you see his scars, you'll be able to say, I got scars too, Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not that we will avoid suffering, 
The good news of the gospel is that we will be saved by the one who overcame the world. So, as, as I close, what does that look like? I mean, okay, well, suffering, whoo. Someone grab the banner. We're suffering Christians. And does, that, does that mean we just go walk, oh, I'm a good Christian. I've received and accepted the suffering of God. No, that's not, that's not what it means. What it means is that as you experience pain, and as you legitimately pray, God, would you deliver me from this pain here and now? Sometimes he'll say yes, and you get delivered. But other times he'll say no. No, this is going to be something that I'm going to use for your benefit. When that happens, don't look for the eject button. We don't have to seek out suffering. God doesn't expect us to call suffering good because it's not. But in his sovereignty, he's able to take things that are bad and use them for our good. It doesn't, therefore, make that bad thing good. When Joseph talked to his brothers and they said, please, don't kill us. Daddy said that you would not kill us. He said, guys, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, which they did mean for evil, God meant for good. So God had a purpose in it and they had a purpose in it. And just because God has a purpose does not deny the fact of justice and and righteousness and things being right and wrong. But what it means is that our view of things can be bigger than, man, this is bad. It's this is bad, but God is good. When we trust God and obey, even when it hurts, we grow. When you're tempted to blow up because you're hurt, take the pain to God. When you're tempted to quit because the Christian life is too hard, ask God for strength. When you're tempted to cut integrity corners because it seems like God's standard is too high, look at Jesus who embraced the difficulty of his mission and obeyed completely. Don't look for an eject button. Living a life worthy of the gospel means that we embrace the hope that we will experience God in his glory in eternity so that now as we stumble through our lives, we can do so even in the face of suffering because God is with us. I'll say that one more time. Living a life worthy of the gospel, being citizens of heaven, means that we embrace the hope that we will experience the glory and the wonder of God in eternity so that right now as we stumble through life, we can do so even in the midst of suffering. We don't have to go around or above or under. We don't have to run away, but we can go through that suffering because God is with us. And hopefully as a church, as we're doing this, not only is God with us, but other Christians are with us as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the most amazing Christian martyrs of of the 20th century. He was a German. He was in Germany. Uh, He was actually part of the the plot to try and assassinate uh, Hitler, which we can talk about that another time. But one of the things he said is that discipleship, following Jesus, means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And, and he made another point that I, I'm not going to read because it's so radical. But, but he, he basically was trying to argue that it, it wasn't through the, the power and strength of God that God saved us. But it was through the weakness and brokenness and suffering of God in Jesus Christ that God saves us. So when we experience weakness and brokenness and suffering, as we walk in obedience, God invites us to embrace our lives and embrace God through it.
because he will be our, our portion. He will be our provider. He will be our healer. But if you run away from those things, you will never experience the grace of God that he has for you in the midst of suffering. You don't need to seek it out, but when you experience it, don't run away. Run to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that life is hard. You know that, that there are people in this room who are really struggling. And so God, I pray that you would minister comfort and encouragement and hope to them. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a vision of eternity where every right, every wrong has been righted, every injustice has been addressed, every broken part has been mended, and, and we get to see your beauty, wonder, glory, awesomeness. I pray that you would give us a vision of that that would, that would motivate us to embrace what you're doing in our lives as we live in a broken world. God, would you minister to this people? Lord, minister to those who are feeling pain, who are feeling heavy. Lord, and I pray that we'd be able to draw close to Jesus who said, take up my burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come and learn from me. I pray that we would do that. God, as we, as we do that, I pray that you would make us a people, not just persons, but a people who love you well by loving one another. I pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.